Alright, we are going behind enemy lines today. Rival Celtics Spot podcaster here on the Celtics Blog Podcast. Jay King is with us from an unknown location, as most of our guests are, just all over the place. Jay, how you doing? Not too bad. My unknown location is actually the back of my parents' car. I'm going to a prep school basketball game right now that my best friend's coaching. Perfect. You're always around yeah. basketball. You can never escape it. Whether you're playing me in the game, summer man. or Celtics, Rockets, the first loss after the All-Star break for the Celtics, uh, 123 to 120, maybe the game of the season, even with the Celtics losing. And what was it like to see, I know you saw them already, but see this revolutionary Houston team up close? So I actually, I got stranded by the weather. So I was the only one of the beat writers whose flight got canceled. And I know Himmelsbach, his flight was after mine, and his didn't get canceled. So I, I actually got stuck in Boston because of the weather. So I, I watched on TV like anybody else. That said, the game was still fantastic. I, I was mad I missed it in person, but it was just a fun-to-watch basketball game. Just everybody making plays. I think, obviously, the Celtics are going to regret the last four minutes, coughing up the six-point lead, the Kyrie Irving missed layup, a few of the turnovers after that, a few of the missed shots after that. But... Until that point, both teams were just just playing great, great basketball. It was, I think, but besides maybe the San Antonio game and maybe the Golden State game when Stephen Curry went wild, one of the best-played basketball games the Celtics have participated in this season. It is insane what Houston's able to do offensively. And the play of the game, in my opinion, ended up being that rebound that Terry Rozier dropped and Houston was able to get it right out for another three. It feels like if you give that team a second chance period, you're screwed. They're just so efficient from three. They shoot so many threes that they're going to get multiple off against you in a single possession. And in a play like that, I think that ended up defining the game. Giving a team like that a second chance is just going to kill you. What is it about Houston? This team is so captivating. We've seen three-point shooting ripple across this league for years. The Celtics have tried to get in on it successfully and emulate what some of the greats have done. But Houston, over the last year or two, has just gone to the forefront of this basketball revolution, it feels like. Well, first of all, they have James Harden, who can break down any defense. And so you have to account for him as a defense. They, they put all shooters around him. And it's not just that they have shooters. It's that they have shooters who have the ultimate green light. Whenever they're open, they're encouraged to pull. You see Eric Gordon pulling from, you know, five, six feet behind the, the arc. And that, that's where he's spotting up. That's where the, the Rockets want him to space out to. So everybody else has, has started to take more three-pointers. But the Rockets have just pushed the envelope farther than, than any other team in the NBA. And it's, they're fun to watch. And they're so tough to guard because of that and I think some of it is the personnel some of it is the the players that they have but also I, I do think some of it's the coaching and you look at them they shoot three-pointers more freely than any team in NBA history and they fire them early in the shot clock they fire them from you know close to half court and it just breaks the defense you talked about the Terry Rozier missed rebound I think part of it is the Rockets they shoot so early in the shot clock and they shoot from while the, your defense is scrambling, it's tougher to rebound. And it, it's tougher to be in position. And you have to really, really, really st- pay close attention to those guys and, and pay close attention to detail or they'll break you because they just they just bend your defense in so many ways and stress, stress you out in so many ways that an average team just doesn't do it. 
And at least from what I saw yesterday, they are sneaky good defensively. Clint Capella has changed that team this year. His absence last year versus his presence this year has seemingly transformed that from a team that's all offense to a team that has balance on both ends of the floor. Al Horford, we're going to get to him in a little bit. There is a lot of chatter about his struggles. But I think beyond his struggles since the break... They, they did a fantastic job getting up into him, whether it was P.J. Tucker or any of those other wings defending a center presence like him. It was amazing what they were able to pull off defensively, even giving up 120 points as they did. Uh, my next question for you is, a lot of people seem to think this Houston team may be the antidote to the Golden State uh, presence over the NBA Finals that we've felt for years now. They may be the new team out of the Western Conference. Do you believe that? I'm not buying that at all. The The Warriors would have, I believe, the two best players in that series, and Stephen Curry and Kevin Durant. I know James Harden is magnificent. He's my, James Harden is my MVP. I still think Curry and Durant are both better. And then they have Clay Thompson, they have Draymond Green. They're just more talented. And you could argue the, the Rockets have had a better regular season. But the Warriors just don't care as much as the Rockets do. The Rockets, this is their first time. They, they still have that excitement about them, whereas the Warriors are just going through the motions and still obliterating teams. So I, I think the Warriors have another level to reach that nobody else does. I think the Rockets are better built to compete against the Warriors than, than most teams have been because of the way they switch and because of the way they launch three-pointers and because they have Martin, who, like I said, is just magnificent. But I do think the Warriors... They might be the most talented, complete team we've seen in NBA history. So I'm just not buying that the Rockets are a real threat to knock them off. I mean, I guess they're a threat. You, anytime, you know, you get in a series and teams are that good and you're a threat. But I just think the Warriors are, are at another level. So let's turn over the Celtics. That's what this show is all about. What did last night tell you about the Celtics, if anything? I think the... The big takeaway from the first five games after the All-Star break is the bench production. Now, that was that was a huge issue all season. Can they score when Kyrie's on the bench? Can they score when Al Horford's on the bench? Well, the last five games, they've been playing great when those guys are on the bench, when both of those guys are on the bench. And, and that's, that's really different from the way it's been all season. I think Marcus Smart's return and the way he's playing since his return, kind of playing within himself, has been huge. I think Marcus Morris is not not only getting more comfortable in Boston's system, but also getting more healthier. You know, you saw him dunk against Houston. It was like his third dunk of the season. You saw him chase down an offensive rebound and tip it out. He hasn't been that mobile this season after dealing with the knee issues earlier in the year. So I think he's improving. I think Terry, Terry Rozier is playing the best basketball of his life. I think he's, he's had 13 straight games in double figures. He's, he's shooting the crap out of the ball. So the whole second year, unit, the way that they've been playing collectively has been huge. And if Greg Monroe can play the way he's played the last two games, he gives him a different dimension because you have Tice can switch and catch lobs and be your athletic guy, big guy. And then in, in different matchups, you can have Monroe who pulverizes you down low and is a great passer and you can run the offense through. So I, I was surprised that the Celtics went to Monroe against the Rockets because I thought they'd, they'd prefer Tice and his lateral mobility defensively, guarding the three-point arc. But they went the other way. They just pounded the ball down to Monroe, and he really hurt switches, and he hurt Capella in the post. 
I, I heard the broadcasters say during the game, if Monroe can defend this team, he can defend any team. And it, it was stunning to see how big of an impact he had on that game. And bo on both ends of the floor, I thought he defended the pick and rolls that Houston was running at him fairly well, better than he has in a Boston uniform to late. He, he just looked comfortable out there. And th th that bench unit, I wanted to get to that because not only did they look phenomenal, 67 points, that's just a given against Houston. They have looked very good since the All-Star break ended. In fact, I think it is the story of the team since the All-Star break has come to a close. Everything's been fantastic, but the Celtics have found their bench unit, it feels like, with Marcus Smart back, with Roger scoring, as you said. Even Semi Ojale was giving them solid minutes in some of those earlier games after the break when uh, they were using him at that small forward role with the second unit. So you got Tice, you got Monroe. This team feels like it's... You know, 9, 10, 11 deep again. Has it found its bench rotation that it's going to aim for in the playoffs? Or are there so many options here that you think there's going to be different lineups depending on who the matchup is or opponent is? I think the three guys who won't change are Marcus Smart, Terry Rozier, and Marcus Morris. I think as you get into the playoffs, you might see one of those guys enter the starting lineup. Obviously, Stevens likes to go small. Come playoff time, obviously, certain teams like the Cavaliers kind of force you to go small because they have so much playmaking, so much shooting. But as far as the rotation goes, at least during the regular season, I think those three guys will be off the bench. And then I think big man is kind of going to come down to matchups. I think between Aaron Baines, Daniel Tice, and Greg Monroe, the Celtics are going to just kind of switch it up. And they're obviously all competent. They're obviously all capable. And they're very different, though. And so Brad Brad Stevens just kind of has, has three different toys. And he has to decide, you know, do I need the, the big bruiser in the post and Greg Monroe? Do I need Tyson and all his, his solid play? Do I need Aaron Baines, who's the, maybe the best defender of the bunch, definitely the best rebounder of the bunch, and, and just a physical force? So he, he has three different types of guys. I do think he'll right, rifle between those, depending on the situation, depending on the opponent. And then, you know, between Shane Larkin and Shemi Ojale, I, I think those guys will see spot minutes, and especially in Larkin's case, I think, maybe more consistent minutes, especially once he gets healthy. Totally forgot about Larkin coming out of this game. There's just so many guards, so many centers, that when one steps out of the fold, it's easy to forget about one of them. Uh, Greg Monroe came here to Boston over an opportunity to start with the Pelicans, and I think that surprised a lot of people. And hearing what he says in the post-game interviews does sound like a guy who came here intent on winning over getting the most opportunity. I find it interesting that you said Baines, they might end up replacing him in the starting lineup come playoff time. Tyson, Monroe feel like it's going to be one or the other off that bench unit. Do these three, you know, from talking to them, know that it's going to kind of be minutes coming and going depending on who they're playing and are okay with that? But obvious Aaron Baines and Daniel Tice, those guys, their roles have kind of gone on and off this year. They've got bigger, got smaller, been fluctuated. They've been perfect professionals. Everybody within the team has, has said that those guys are just as solid as it gets. Monroe, I'm not as familiar with because he just got here. But obviously, he, he, he looked at the situation. The Celtics were up front with him. You know, you're going to have to earn your minutes. You're going to have to compete with these other guys. And so I don't foresee that being an issue. He, he's kind of, for a 27-year-old, he's kind of been through everything. Like, he was seen as a rising star when he was younger. He got a, a big old contract. He 
was demoted to the bench. He's been bought out. Like at 27, he he's just kind of got had a, a weird and and chaotic, I guess, career arc. So I assume he he's he's good at kind of dealing with the punches and 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 kind of going with the flow because he's had to deal with a lot so far in his career. Remember that lineup Detroit ran with him back in the day? Andre Drummond, him, and Josh Smith? That was one of the wackiest lineups I've seen in my life. Yeah, that one was a weird one. (laughs) (laughs) So let's get on to some of the other big stories out of this game. Al Horford seems to be the biggest one. Had a key turnover down the stretch in this game. 13-42 since the break. We've all heard the unwarranted Al Horford criticism throughout his time here. I think the criticism raising of him now seems to be warranted. He, he has not played very well since the All-Star break has come. And th- that kind of showed its head in the biggest way possible against Houston. All those key baskets down low that he got shut down on, if he had two or three of those, the Celtics probably win that game. What is that? He definitely talked about the issues the challenges he's going through right now after the game, but what do you get a sense is the problem with him right now? I, I think part of it is just not making shots. I, I think oddly enough, turnovers have been more of an issue for him this year than they have been in the past, and I, I don't know whether that's because the offense as a whole hasn't functioned as, as well, or, or what the case has been, but he's, he's definitely turning the ball over at a higher rate this year than he typically has. Uh, I don't think any of it's a real issue. Like This is, this is Al Horford. He's been Mr. Solid since he came to the league 2007-2008. It's, it's been a decade of, of him being just Mr. Reliable. So five games, yeah, you, you would like him to play better, yeah. I'm sure he would like to have the open three-pointer back, and he would like to have the, the pass to Marcus Smart, which was picked off back, and he'd like to have the, the pass after he was on the floor. He'd like to have that one back, but really – when you look at his his career and everything he's done, it, it's not a big concern that, that he's he's missed some shots for five games. And especially it's not a concern because the Celtics have been playing so well during that time. It, I, I think it, it's more of a, almost a positive. Like, once Al Horford gets back to being Al Horford, wow. <laughs> like, wow. They've been playing well enough, well enough already. Now you add Al Horford making shots on top of it. It's just different. I do think the Rockets are kind of a tough matchup for him because they can switch and they can have P.J. Tucker on him. And Al Horford, in a lot of ways, he, he's not a primary playmaker. He's like when Kyrie draws attention, he can pick apart a, a rotating defense. He can pick apart a smaller guy on the block. He, he's he always makes the right play, almost always makes the right play, with the exception of the last four minutes in the game against the Rockets. The Rockets, because they switch so much, they, they, they can make things a little tough on him, and that's okay. It just means other guys have to, have to step up. Um, and I, I thought he was, he was pretty good most of the night, with the exception, obviously, of, of the last four minutes. This team's still finding its lineups with about 20 games to go. Still even trying to find its identity a little bit, I'd say, with a new player in here, um, a new team as a whole with less than a season together. It's amazing how much they've won despite the fact that they're still trying to figure everything out, it feels like, whether it's young players, whether it's what lineups are going to work best come playoff time. 
with Horford himself, what have you made of his role this year? Because early on, it looked like he might have been the MVP of the team, the way he was producing on both ends of the floor, still being talked about as a defensive player of the year candidate. The two-man game, him and Irving, something that flashed early on, hasn't been as prevalent lately. We talked about the struggles over the last five games, which seems like more of a blip on the radar than an indication of his whole season so far. But what have you made of his season to date? I, I think the the biggest thing that jumps out, besides the obvious, besides the things he's always done, is just the the expansion of his three-point range and the accuracy he's shown for three-point range. He has been, I believe, before, maybe before February. I'm not sure what his numbers were in February, to be honest. But the previous months, he was over 40% from the arc every single month. And that's that's something that's relatively new to his game. He didn't really start attempting three-pointers until a couple of seasons ago. He didn't really become a, a top, a, a accurate three-point shooter until the playoffs last year. And then he just never missed, and he's carried it over to this season. So I think that's been the biggest change. Other than that, he's kind of been just Al Horford. He does a little bit of everything. He's he's good to very good at everything and not necessarily great at any one skill, except now as a three-point shooting big man, he's, he's elite. And so it's hard to complain about Al Horford when he's had such such a nice season, when he's had when he's led the Celtics in assists, when he's so key to their top-ranked defense, when his the numbers on off the floor have been just stellar. So I, I, it, it's hard for me to complain too much about a, a five-game skid from Al Horford, given all he's done this year, and given just just how steady he's been throughout his career. I will agree with that one. So Jalen Brown. Another discussion entirely. He, he went into the All-Star break playing phenomenally, I thought. Adding some dribble moves. He had that amazing Rising Stars game. We talked about him a little bit on the show last week, coming out of that Rising Stars game and coming out of the All-Star break. And he, he's continued it. He had a 24-point game, double figures in three of the five games since the break. And I feel like he is doing a better job putting up those double-digit scoring numbers more consistently. Going back since the New Year's, pretty much, most of his games, he's getting to that double-figure total. But only eight shots against Houston. And a number of people I've talked to, listened to, hear a lot of complaints about this team on Twitter when they lose. But what I hear consistently through the 20 games they've lost this year is that, you know, maybe Jalen Brown's not getting enough shots. Eight field goal attempts against Houston, only 23 minutes, less than some of the other players who were getting involved. The bench was rolling, of course, but there, there was a lot of chatter after that game about Jalen Brown, the minutes, the shot attempts against Houston. What did you make of that? Well, I think part of it was he was foul trouble really early. Picked up his third in the second quarter. He had <laughs> that one where Harden kind of held him and shoved him, and so Part of it is just you can't get a rhythm when you're always in foul trouble. And for the most part, Jalen Brown's shot attempts have not been a real issue. I think he's got to be – he's probably second on the team in shot attempts, I, I believe. So I don't think that's been a real issue. I, I think it their their system just kind of whoever is open shoots it. And it's, it's not necessarily that, that you're running plays for a certain guy to get the ball. It's just everybody's going to be involved and whoever has opportunities on a certain night because the defense plays a certain way, that's going to be how it happened. In, in a game that they scored 120 points, in a, in a game where 
their offense functions so well, it's hard to pick on one guy like that for only having eight shot attempts. It's like, yeah, he only had eight shot attempts, but the team shot in 50% and hit 13 threes and did a lot of really good things. So I, I don't know. It, it's it's it tough tough for me to, to criticize how the offense played when everybody was getting pretty good shots and everybody was knocking those shots down. You are correct. 5.2 shots per game. Jalen Brown is second on the team behind Irving. So stats right off the top of the head. Jay King's got him. <laughs> Last question I got for you. Marcus Smart. So much chatter through the All-Star break about he, him possibly being the savior for that second unit, the savior for the team's defense. And it paid off. Plus 39 in five games since the break. He's looked smooth. He has picked his spots. He, he just looks hyper-focused in what he's doing out on the court, only going over 10 field goal attempts once, which was against Houston yesterday. And assisting 5-6 a game every single game since the break. He's doing it all, again, in the free throw line a little bit, hitting some threes here or there. He's looked smooth. Is, is it just the focus that the team drilled into him with that long break, with the mistake he made out in Los Angeles? And could this be something that continues going into the postseason? Well, I think his body was beaten up a little bit, too. A couple of the guys said before he injured himself that he was hurt, and he was banged up, and... He wasn't moving as well as he should. So I think you see him moving a little better now. I think he's picking his spots better. He's, he's not taking as many three-pointers. He's taking a, you know, his shot attempts are a little down. He seems to be more comfortable just picking his spots and running the offense. And he's I, he's played some, some really great, solid basketball since he's come back for the most part. I think during the fourth quarter against the Rockets, he had a couple plays. He had a missed layup. And he had the the jumper with a minute or two left that probably was ill-advised but for the most part he's he's been really really good i think he is a key piece he's a key piece for them it's it's obvious that he gives them an energy that they don't have without him it's obvious the second unit functions better when he when he's running the show it's it's obvious that, that they have a toughness to them and a, an attitude to them that they don't have when he's not there. So he, he, he's a big part, and and he's he's such a he's such a funny player. That last play against the Rockets game, man, like, it was basically Antonio Gates boxing out in the in the end zone, trying to trying to catch a jump ball, or Rob Gronkowski. <laughs> he almost hit it too. It was, it was like. It brings me back to that last play of the Atlanta series a couple of years ago where he stole the inbounds and, like, threw it from three-fourths of the court and almost hit it off a steal. Like, the Celtics weren't even inbounding it. Atlanta was, and he still stole it and took it like they were inbounding it to him. Wackiest plays both ways. Like, the worst plays you'll ever see and then, like, something you'd never imagine anyone else being able to do. Yeah, that's, that's just what he does. It, it goes to show how much the Celtics trust his competitiveness that they threw that last play to him. He's obviously the worst shooter on the court, but they knew Marcus Smart was going to box out Chris Paul and Marcus Smart was going to catch the inbounds pass no matter where it was, and Marcus Smart was going to get up a three-point shot. So it was, it, was, it, was, it was funny because only Marcus Smart would 
<laughs> would box out Chris Paul like that. Chris Paul never had a chance of getting that ball. Smart should have been a, a linebacker. He should have been a tight end. He could have <laughs> played football in any number of positions. But that was – it was a lot closer, that, that attempt, than, than I think anyone thought it would be. So At some entertaining point, end to that pull, game. At some point, they're going to pull off a miracle like that. They, they run some really – nice plays and situations where you think they have no chance to tie the game. I, mean, I, I don't remember one during the Stevens era where there was just like absolutely no chance like there was right there and they still almost pulled it off. But at some point it feels like they're going to get something like that sometime during the Stevens era to come. Uh, last question I got for you today, Jay. We, we don't pull you off Rain and Jays very often. I don't anticipate us doing it again. So yeah, I'll ask you this while you're here. What do, you, what do you make of the Celtics team? Some people see them going to the finals. Some people think that they just you know, aren't going to be able to pull it out. What, what do you think their upside is? Because Gordon Hayward is not coming back. They finally slammed the door on that shut yesterday, which surprised me, but also relieved me a little bit because I feel like that was going to have to be a topic on our show every single week, and I didn't want it to be. But now we get that out of the way. We know who's going to be here for the playoff run. We have a little bit of an idea of what the lineups are going to look like. And we know the competition at this point. Toronto is going to be incredibly tough. Cleveland is rejuvenated. What are you expecting come playoff time? And what do you make of this team so far on the whole? Have they developed an identity yet to you? Uh, I mean, yeah. They're, they're the top-ranked defense. They're, they're a defense-first team. They're, they're going to be rugged, and they're going to get into you, and they're going to attack you. I think the offense will be their limiting factor. And I do think I won't be surprised by anything really in the East. I, I'm not sure how good Cleveland is. I know they'll have another level when Kevin Love gets back. And I know they'll have another level when LeBron James goes into playoff mode, but I don't know. I, I'm pretty sure they're, they're not as good as they were last year when they still had Kyrie Irving. And I don't know just how good they are. I'm not sure how, whether to trust the Toronto Raptors in the playoffs. They've been great so far. They've been fantastic. But can you trust them when, when the games get close and it's a postseason atmosphere? And they, are they going to go back into iso ball? Or are they going to shrink like they have in the past playoffs? And then the other thing is, I don't think the Celtics are great. I don't think the Raptors are great. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think any of those teams are great. I, I, I see the 76ers out there. They're super talented. I see Milwaukee out there. They have Giannis, who's fantastic. So not, not I don't think it's a great preview of the NBA Finals right now. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm saying I, I don't think it's out of the question for the Celtics to get knocked off in the first or second round. I don't think it's out of the question for them to go to the finals and give a pretty good test against whoever they play. I, I think the the range of of outcomes is is wide because I, I I just don't see them as being elite yet. I think when Gordon Hayward gets back, obviously they'll they'll grow closer to that. And I, I think once Gordon Hayward gets back, this team will be so dangerous and so dynamic, and with Tatum and Brown growing. But I just don't see them as, as elite yet. And when you're not elite. You know that you you're gonna you're gonna be a dogfight in the playoffs. And think of last year, how close that Wizards series was, and being down two nothing to Chicago. Like there, those series could have swung either way. So I I I I I, I wish I could give you a, a more definitive answer, but 
I can't. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> well, thanks for trying. <laughs> I was surprised to hear you. Actually, I wasn't surprised, but I found it funny that over the last week you heard Brad Stevens, as he did, saying, yeah, we don't anticipate Hayward coming back. Then Ainge finally jumped on that train, even though he seemed to be the one leaving it a little more open than Stevens was. And then you, I've listened to multiple shows, and I hear people saying, oh, he, they haven't said he's not coming back. They said they don't anticipate it, so that leaves the door open. And then almost directly in response, it seemed like Brad Stevens said, no, he's not coming back the other day. Were you surprised that Stevens officially shut him down this weekend? Or was that in response to any development? Because uh, we did have Chris Mannix writing that Hayward's ankle is still uh, black and blue over the last week. I just think that at this point of the season, a month and a half left, he's still not able to cut. There's just not a lot of time left. And he's got a long way to go and not much time to do it. So I think it's, it's pretty obvious that it's a very long shot at this point. And I think it's been a very long shot since the beginning. You know, the Celtics were awarded the disabled player exception, which means that a, a doctor was ruled that Hayward would be out at least until June 15th when the NBA finals end. So from the beginning, it's been a long shot now with so little time left and so many steps for him to still take it's longer than ever. So I think Stevens was just kind of pointing out the fact that Hayward still has a long way to go. And some of the excitement is probably too much. Jay, hope you enjoyed stepping over the other side for this week. I know I did. Yeah. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. All right, that's Jay King in the car on the way to another basketball game, even though he missed the Houston one yesterday. Is that, is that the first time that's happened to you uh, since you started reporting on the team, Jay? Uh, yeah, that I, that I had a flight canceled and couldn't actually make it to the game. Yeah, that, that was it. Then it <laughs> wait, wait, happened you end up at a terrible time. I, I watched it from my parents' house, actually. Not bad. So weekend with the parents. That's Jay yep. King. I'm Bobby Manning. We're out. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you next week. Arena in Dallas, where the Mavs and Lakers are playing tonight, was built in 1980. Now, you couldn't ask for a better facility. It's easily accessible, has all the comforts of a theater, and there isn't a bad seat in the house. But for some reason, there are those who prefer the Boston Garden, mostly those who wear Celtic green. What is so special about the Boston Garden, other than the fact that it's a thousand years old? Let's take a look. First of all, a garden it's not. It's a train station, really. One flight up, and you're on the fabled parquet floor. Now, before you get all misty-eyed about the parquet, take a closer look.